I'm Lisa Lancer-Rose. And I'm Anne Labar. And this is This Animal Life. Today we're going to talk about cats. So I'm going to tell you this story. Okay. And I'm going to give you some of my sources, not for the story, but for some of the concepts that are okay. behind it. Uh, one is Franz de Waal's Are We Smart Enough to Know How Smart Animals ah, Are? Oh, I like that. That is a book. Yeah. And um, I often refer to Vicki Hearn's book, Adam's Task, Calling Animals by Name. She has a whole chapter on cats. It's called What It Is About Cats. So uh, those two books and some articles list on the website. And of course, Wikipedia. And we're going to, uh, I also referred to some videos. There were video interviews about this cat. Um, and uh, we'll share those with you on our website. But before I get to the story itself, I want to share a helpful new word. Uh, it is my new favorite word. I learned it in this um, investigation. I came upon it in Franz de Waal's Are We Smart Enough to Know How Smart Animals Are? And the word is umwelt. Umwelt? It's German. Yeah, it's spelled U-M-W-E-L-T. Okay. So it's always going to be italicized in English, and it's spelled U-M-W-E-L-T. So let me tell you about yes, umwelt. Please. Jacob von Uxkuhl, Uxkuhl is also German, in case you can't tell. He was a biologist, and he was born in 1864, died in 1944, and he was this champion of considering the animal's point of view, oh, wow. like if you're doing um, uh, behavior, if you're a behaviorist, or, um, uh, you know, it was kind of a, an anti-objectivity, um, anti what's the word um mechanistic oh, okay view you know and and even uh, opposed to the hierarchy um of okay. creation yes you know it, it was it was if you were going to study an animal's behavior it was important to look at the its behavior from the animal's right. point of view like to credit that to to give that higher status so it um umwelt i i think it literally means surrounding word surrounding oh, world okay so that's felt i'm thinking of the ray bradbury story where the awful children put their parents in the veldt um <laughs> yes um my husband is south african and veldt is a kind of ecosystem okay, yes okay so that would be where the lions live in the veldt in the short story that's why they call it the veldt because that's yes. where the lions live okay yes okay oh everything just makes sense now um yeah i had a little thing here about i can't find oh here it is it's usually translated as self-centered world oh, okay. you know as he used it the literal translation is surrounding word or environment but as he uses it it means self-centered okay. world so it's the assertion that organisms experience life in terms of species specific um, spatio-temporal subjective reference frames okay so um, you could look at it as the three blind men and the elephant when we talk about people each have their own experiences or walk a mile in another man's moccasins, you know, um, in this case, the three blind men, you know, one says the elephant is like a tree trunk and the other one says the elephant is like a snake, you know, uh, and the three blind men aren't men. They're individuals of different species experiencing the same environment in each in their own peculiar ways. Uh, Umwelt reminds me of um, Thomas Nagel's famous 1974 essay, What Is It Like to Be a right. Bat? 
which we'll probably reference again, um, that's basically about the limits of human imagination and objectivity yes. or the problem of f assuming that you're being objective. Right. Um, without the uh, echolocation, the power of echolocation, and they will say from uh, birth. Yes. Well, yeah. We can, yeah, we can never accurately and objectively imagine the consciousness of a bat. So our Umwelt does not permit us to com uh, complete an objective access to the bat's Umwelt. And it made me think of this blind guy who echolocates. Have you heard about him? Yes, Like I he have. started echolocating as a child. Yeah, oh, so fascinating. Anyway, um, he's probably the human right, best the able bat boy. to imagine what, what it's like to be a bat. The Batman the bat but boy. Yeah. Yes, and he, he trains other blind children to That's echolocate. Right. He can ride a bike oh, now. It's crazy. It's awesome. Yeah, it is crazy. It's wonderful. Crazy, <laughs> wonderful. But even in his case, he can't imagine what it's like to be a bat. He can imagine what it's like. His umwelt is being an echolocated right. human. Which is different. Which would have to be different. So, yeah. Um, also, is it that different? Because I think I read where they studied the brain activity of this guy and it the brain activity resembles our brain activity. Yes, in that he, in the visual cortex. What we thought were sight. Yeah. Yes, what we thought were, was the visual cortex right. is really um, a, like a mapping spatial right. relationship and he does cortex. in some ways see it. Exactly. See what's there, see the trees. It's really, yeah. it's redefining our assumptions about, or no, it's changing yes. our assumptions about mm -hmm. sight. And what that means. And well, when you talk about the other, you know, we talk about dogs being colorblind or only seeing black and white, which isn't true, but, um, but other animals, other mammals see colors differently than us, as far as we can tell. Oh, that's always a problem. You can't, it, how? <laughs> and that's a problem in my marriage. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> because, well, <laughs> what Albie calls green, you know, I, I look at it and it is not green. I'm sorry. It's not good. There's nothing green about it. Like, why? You know, and he's not colorblind. He is learning. I think it's more, here's where we get into the issue and we are so off the yeah, rails right now. <laughs> but, um, this is really a language right. problem. It's a, really, is a translation know, like what, thing? Yeah, no, no. What I mean is what he calls green or or what anybody calls green. We don't know. Right. We don't know really what, they, what they we don't. No. We only know what green means in our umwelt. Yes. Right. And sometimes we agree and sometimes we consider divorce. <laughs> <laughs> Over green. Gotcha. All right. <laughs> Before we're we're going to be talking Umwelt okay, this great. whole time, but before we go any further, I have to recommend Nick DiCario's short story "I Am Mr. Baxter." Um, we're going to make that available to you on our website. Um, it is a little bit like Franz Kafka's "The Metamorphosis," where um, Mr. Baxter wakes. Oh no, I, I'm, I'm forgetting who Mr. Baxter is. The cat and. Mr. Baxter's owner, it's told from Mr. Baxter's owner's point of view, he wakes up in the morning and he is Mr. Baxter. And Nick 
spent the whole story deeply inhabiting the umwelt of a man who has who wakes up to find himself in a cat's body. Gotcha. That's wonderful. And later encounters his own body with a Mr. Baxter inside it. <laughs> and Mr. Baxter is reacting <laughs> to having woken up in a man's body. Um, it is hilarious. It is fascinating. Uh, Nick did a very deep dive. And um, it's also quite suspenseful and it takes some twists and turns that you do not expect. It is such a good ride. So uh, with a, a bow and a nod to the mastery of DiCario, <laughs> Uh, I, I'm I'm not even going to say another word about it because it's so good. <laughs> I can't do it justice. Instead, I'm going to tell you the story of Oscar the Therapy Cat. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if it's the if it's the kitty I'll that I think I know, but yeah, please. Uh, okay. Um, so I mean, we're going to start and end with the human umwelt because we can't help it. <laughs> but, um, at, at uh, several points, I'm going to try to do what Nick DiCario did and go feline. Oh, okay. All right. So let's see if this is the Oscar you think it is. Uh, Steerhouse Nursing and Rehabilitation Centers in Providence, Rhode Island. It's a pet-friendly nursing home. Um, they have 41 beds, and they treat people who have end-stage Alzheimer's, Parkinson's disease, other illnesses. Um, and these people, it's important to note, are generally unaware of their surroundings. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. Um, especially the ones that Oscar seems to prefer. <laughs> uh, Oscar, was, <laughs> Oscar was one of six. <laughs> is it the cat you think it was? Yes, it is. But I mean, just the fact that they don't care whether you know they're there or not. But go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I find so much of this so fascinating. And that is one of those, especially when you start talking about the collisions of umwelts. Yes. Okay. So Oscar was one of six cats they adopted in 2005. He is often described, and when I say often described, I mean that I read a whole bunch of articles that I just, it would be too boring for you if I listed them all here out loud. Um, and I watched video interviews with Dr. Dosa, who's the one who made Oscar famous. Um, and, uh, you know, you see Oscar and all, but in all of these accounts of Oscars, uh, they say that he's not the friendliest cat. He does his own thing, you know. Um, David Dosa even said, uh, the last place you'll find him is in somebody's lap. Oh, not a lap cat. Okay. Yeah, but he's a therapy cat. Go figure. <laughs> You know, you go to the pound, you, you know, yeah. you, you get what you get. And, and like you, like you said earlier, you, you let the cat be a cat. <laughs> this is who Oscar is, right? Right. He's not quite a grumpy cat. Well, yeah, maybe he is a grumpy cat. Um, and as you know, I have an unfriendly cat. Yes, you do. Um, my cat, Audrey, is... Um, yeah, she's yeah. dangerous. I find it hysterical. She is so, so unfriendly that she is dangerous. <laughs> Why does because, it well, you? because there's an attitude there. Um, and as the my Audrey story is that when I came to see you that one time, I stayed in the guest room, which I guess was Audrey's room, like where she hung out. Well, right. Well, she slept room. on that bed, I, I think. But anyway, she was. Yes, it was. Um, 
She's my daughter's cat, where she used to be. So daughter. I am, um, and I'm used to being a cat person and cats will come up to me on the street and I can meow. In fact, I meowed my way to a skunk one time thinking it was a cat, um, which was very interesting. And that's another story. But, um, you know, I can approach a cat and cats usually love me and we have conversations and in cat and, you know, I'm used to having little, you know, witchy cat powers. So you're, you're fluent in cat. I am fluent in cat and we get along quite well. And Audrey wanted one, nothing to do with me. Two, I was in her space. And then the morning that I woke up, you had these vertical blinds on the window, um, you know, like long yes. strips of whatever the plastic that they're made out of and they they turn. Yeah, all yes, the rage right? in the 80s. So the vertical blinds. And she is staring at me and just like pulling them up and they're going flap. Whap, whap. And she's just, I mean, just drilling holes in me. Wow. I didn't know she was staring at you while she was oh, doing that. that yes. So menacing. Oh, it was very menacing. And it was wake the hell up. Get yes. out of that bed. I bet she learned that when she rattled them, my daughter woke up. Probably. Yeah. Oh, she was getting me out of there. But it was just, it made <laughs> me laugh because I was like, wow, okay. <laughs> I am not in your good graces at all. No, and you were lucky because um, we took Audrey to the vet. One, like the first time we took Audrey to the vet, I they're like, get her out of her crate and put her on the, you know, there's like, there's like this medical surgical steel table, right. you know, examination yeah. table. You're alone in the room. I take her out. She's fine. I can handle her. So I'm, I'm holding her. And at this point, this is before I knew who I had. <laughs> um, we're waiting, we're waiting. I'm petting her. She's fine. And the door opened and I can't, I think it was a technician. I don't think it was the vet proper, but a vet tech comes through the door and Audrey leapt from the table at the vet tech. <gasps> snarling. She was screaming and her nails are out. And there was a, a brief scuffle <laughs> with blood and the vet tech was gone. And, um, she said, uh, you're going to have to put her back in her crate and we're going to have to gas her. Yeah. Yeah. So after that, if she had to go to the vet, she came in her little carry case and they just put the whole carry case down <laughs> into like this gas chamber. Oh my God. I didn't know they did that. And I worked at a vet. Yes, Anne. <laughs> I'm so sorry that I put you in danger like that. Oh no, that's fine. Good. Again, I just, I find those but, things funny, but. <laughs> and the fact that a cat would launch from a table right, right at somebody who's entering the room. Um, I, I was led to believe that was not common. No. And then, uh, so it, that's expensive and it's a little scary to have your cat knocked unconscious. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they had 15 minutes they had to do what they were going to do. You know, she's older now. I don't want to do that to her. So, um, but she did get a bunch of mats on her belly because I was afraid to groom her. And she, at some point she didn't groom her. I don't, it was like her winter coat kind of got away from her. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cause she's and sort of a long hair cat. She is kind yeah. of medium length hair. And um, she always kept herself really well. But one year I, I noticed there were like these dreads on her belly. <laughs> I was like, whoa, I'm not touching that. So I called around and I found a grooming company that, or a grooming, what do they call them? Salon. I found a grooming salon that uh, said that I called them up and I'm like, hey, I have this cat that doesn't like to be handled. And they're, and they're like, oh no, we, we can do it. 
we handle all kinds of frightened, dangerous kitties. I'm like, mm, okay. <laughs> so I brought her in and the guy's uh, really crowing about his talents, you know, taming difficult cats. Yes, much like me. <laughs> <laughs> and Audrey was in her carrier on a chair when he came in to talk to us. And he was, I mean, he, when now I think about his body language, I mean, his chin was up, his back was straight. He's regaling us with stories of his successes. And he's saying, I've never had a cat that I could not groom. And he said, I'll, I'll just take her in the back now and we'll get to know each other. And he bent down to look in the crate and she kind of exploded <laughs> against the mesh. <laughs> And all the joy went from his face. He was, he was shattered. Like his confidence was just gone. And well, and really what it was is he was losing face. Uh, yes. Yeah. And he, I could see, you know, he, he thought for a minute, he's like, well, you know, maybe, uh, maybe you could carry her at least like trying to reassess. <laughs> and then um, at, by this point, while he's backpedaling, the room is full of this low growl. <sighs> Like the room starts to hum. And he, he said, um, you know what? I'm sorry. I can't, I can't groom your cat. I did groom the cat myself. She will, I, I discovered that she will let me touch her anywhere. Oh, wow. And I got all those nasty knots oh, good. Uh, off her belly, you know, all in all her intimate areas. Oh, <laughs> I, was wow. able, I was able to groom her. Yeah. I mean, it took weeks. <laughs> just I had to anyway we, we don't need to talk about any more about Audrey I, I just um I just wanted to say I, I think it's important to um to think about what an unfriendly cat is and Oscar was an unfriendly cat gotcha uh, I, yeah I'll even tell you a little detail about the unfriendliness but uh, about animals in nursing home dosa says that animals in nursing homes are critically important I'm quoting some article or other here um Good research shows that the presence of animals reduces depression or agitation among patients, provided the animal is not bloodying you, I guess. <laughs> because our agitation went way up. Right. <laughs> but apparently depression and agitation are measurable in patients who aren't communicative or who have dementia. And those levels go down just having the animal around, which maybe is why they kept Oscar. Okay. Even if he didn't sit in your lap and purr and so forth, just seeing him walk by, you know, yeah. or seeing snoozing on a windowsill. Um, there's a lot of good data that suggests that among healthier, older adults, pets reduce heart disease and hypertension yeah. and depression. Yes. So I remember my, um, my mother's doctor told her that she should have, she had just gotten rid of a cat <laughs> and he said, oh no, you should have a cat. Um, so actually he recommended a dog, I think, but oh. my mother went out and got another cat. Um, and also her cat, Rosie was very unfriendly. Um, I don't know if I'm, Rosie's story is, is upsetting. Uh, so I don't know if I'll tell it today, but um, she was also unfriendly, but she was one of those scaredy cats that went and hid. Uh, like I would stay with my mother for a month and I would, you see would never Rosie see her. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. But Audrey, interesting. Audrey does not hide. No, Audrey's. So there's a, an unfriendly cat because it's afraid. But then Audrey, when I've had parties and Audrey's in the house, Audrey, at some point when the party is like 
at its peak, like everybody's talking, there's lots of crosstalk and movement and, you know, it's lively, like at the height of its liveliness, Audrey enters the room. She will get up on the couch and like walk back and forth on the back of the couch. So um, you just, I tell people to just don't touch her. (laughs) (laughs) Don't reach out. Don't try and pet her. (laughs) No, there was a cat in my neighborhood. Incidentally, side note, Audrey is what you call strawberry tabby. Okay. She's an orange cat. Yeah. There was an orange cat in my one of my old neighborhoods that was similar. Like if you were out walking on the sidewalk, she would come trotting up or he, I can't remember what it was, but, um, and you would think the cat was friendly. The cat would even like rub itself on your ankle. Yeah. And you could bend down and sometimes you could pet the cat, but you got like maybe three strokes, maybe five strokes. <laughs> and then you got stitches. Right. You know? <laughs> So um, Oscar was born in 2005. I said that he was one of six cats. Um, He got famous because of a publication in the New England Journal of Medicine in the year 2007. Um, Oscar was noted in this article to make his own ward rounds in the nursing home, and he would sniff and observe patients. Um, he would be indifferent to most of them, and then he would decide to curl up on the bed uh, only of certain patients at certain times. And the patients that he uh, graced with his company in this way, this is right. intimate company, um, would die within a few hours. A few hours. Okay. Yes. Okay. I thought it was like the next day or something, but wow. Okay. No, within a few hours. So what he had done was curled up next to patients who had entered what you might call, I think what is called active dying, which is such an interesting oxymoron. Um, So uh, the cat was so precise in his assessment of impending death. Uh, These are like phrases I'm getting from Pitius. Okay. Right. (laughs) It's an article in the National Center for Biotechnology Information, which we will make available to you. Um, He was so good at this that um, the staff developed a protocol that required the patient's family be called in uh, if Oscar had curled up next to their loved one. That's very helpful. Yes. Um, it's, uh, the article said, his mere presence at the bedside is viewed by physicians and nursing home staff as an almost absolute indicator of impending death. Wow. While uh, I was thinking, you know, relying on a cat to tell healthcare professionals when death is near uh, is doesn't seem so scientific, right? Right. Uh, but when I was googling Oscar, you know, the angel of death, or whatever, they call right? It, you know, the the Grim Reaper, Oscar the Grim Reaper. Uh, I did come up with some articles that were about, like, he was just mentioned in passing or in the introduction, and the article was about how we need to do better. So determining the hour of active dying is not, we're, we're not that good at it. We're right. not as good at it as we would like to be because you, what you want to do is you want to call the family right. so that they can gather. So they can get know? there in time. Sure. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, so he was mentioned as uh, we got to do better than this cat, you know, <laughs> like the cat up to the ante, um, <laughs> sorry, raise the bar. So, um, some people wonder, like, 
why would you want that cat in your room? <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, or is the cat even causing, you know, it reminds me of um, cats and babies. Yes. They, you, they suck born, your do you breath. Want... Yes. Old wives tale. They suck the breath yes. out of babies. Yeah. Um, what is that? Uh, the fear of cats. Ilurophobia. Ilurophobia. The irrational fear of cats. I looked into that a little bit because certainly Oscar is a cat you should be afraid of. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and uh, phobia of cats, ilurophobia, uh, seems to be most common in people who were attacked by a cat at a young age. Like you meet Audrey when you're four and you're going to be afraid oh, yeah. of cats. My students heard these stories of cat of my cat and they called her the flying chainsaw of rage. <laughs> that was her nickname. That's a Somebody great actually, nickname. I want that to be my nickname. <laughs> they even drew a cartoon of her on the on the blackboard that nobody would erase. You know, <laughs> it's the flying chainsaw of rage. Um, you know, but uh, other people are afraid of cats for no good reason. Um, and you know, it's interesting to think about why. I mean, there are superstitions about black cats. Um, there's the way they stare. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, and Vicki Hearn in Adam's Task, she uses the term ilurophobia, but <clears throat> she uses it like the way, same kind of the same way we use homophobia, it loosely, you know, to oh, okay. just be like a bias against cats. She's identified a bias against cats, uh, you know, like in science. Uh, people sure. say, yeah, um, cats are going to screw up your data because they don't, they don't behave the way we think they should. Right. But, okay, so... You would think that people would be afraid of him. And some patients' families did, in fact, say, we don't want that cat in our room. Right. <laughs> but most patients are, uh, were, or the families, because the patients right. themselves have no idea that Oscar is in their room. Let's right. just They're... make that very clear right, right now. These particular patients in active dying, they can't know that Oscar is there. And if they do know Oscar's there, it's a warm kitten right. next to them. Right. Um, and they don't know that he has this reputation right. in the media. They have not been watching TV. So the family of one patient in particular said, um, it's not that we trusted the cat more than the nurse. Not exactly. It was, well, there was just something about Oscar. He seemed so convinced of what he was doing. He was so clear in his intention and his dedication. Wow. Yeah. So is this projection? Is this anthropomorphism? Uh, we want to inquiring minds. Yeah. What do you think? Uh, animals have jobs. I mean, I would, I would, I would prefer to think and would think that um, he was going to give comfort. That was the cat that he was. And that, you know, had it been another animal, if they could smell active death, um, you know, if it was another cat, he would have done the same. Um, so that's how interesting. I think. Um, that, that has thrown me for a little curve. Oh, okay. I like it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I had not thought of that. That is, I love that. Okay. Um, let's, I do have, um, more to tell you about his behavior and, um, some theories okay. that I came across. Um, so Dosa, Dr. Dosa is the one who published that article in um, the New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, he was a geriatrician at Brown University. Okay. 
Um, now, uh, and he, the article in the uh, New England Journal of Medicine was about Oscar's ability to predict a patient's death. Right. And so in that article, which I read, and in interviews later, he noted how extraordinary it was that the New England Journal, no, not in the article, but in an interview later, right. He noted how extraordinary it was that the New England Journal of Medicine even published that article. Oh, yeah. Because it it is just a human interest story. I found it and I read it. Um, later, Dosa published a book about Oscar, oh. which is how he ended up like on the talk show circuit. Uh, the book is called Making Rounds with Oscar, The Extraordinary Gift of an Ordinary Cat. I did not read that book, oh, I but that. I did read about that book. <laughs> yeah. Well, I will tell you about that. Yes. Book. Anyway, um, I, in the New England Journal of Medicine article, the first behavior that we see from Oscar is him hissing at a woman who's walking past him. I think the woman had a walker and she's walking past him and he hisses at her. So he, he has a little Audrey in him. He's not orange, though. But um, Dosa adds that it's not yet her time and he wants nothing to do with her. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. All he wants is people dying. Right. <laughs> Day two hundred and thirty-six of my captivity yes. in the nursing home. <laughs> I will. I will clear this um, place. <laughs> so the article is kind of like a field study of Oscar, okay, in the New England Journal of Medicine. Wow, right? Um, yeah. So Dosa kind of attempts to enter Oscar's umwelt, okay, but. You know, even as it, like in this phrase, it's not yet her time. He wants nothing to do with it. It doesn't feel like he's even trying to be objective. Right. You know, yeah. or or he thinks he's being objective and accurate, but he's making some assumptions. You can oh. just feel it in the language. Like oh, there's sure. a little romanticizing this. Mm -hmm. I don't know. No, um, I, I, that's what it sounds like. Okay, so he talks a little about uh, Oscar um, walking down hallways and snacking on cable. Like he just sort of follows him. It's it's like he, we didn't have um, what are those cameras called? All the uh, little GoPros. GoPro, yeah, yeah. It's like he's trying to be Oscar's GoPro, or or he's he he's got a GoPro of his own and he's sort of following Oscar around. <laughs> it's kind of sweet, you know. Uh, and but he says um, all Oscar wants, and I am very interested in what Oscar wants, which is why what you said about him wanting to comfort a dying creature um you know who knows what happened to him before he ended up in the shelter sure. <laughs> maybe maybe his own mom died you know <laughs> yeah but <laughs> sorry that's not funny um but uh he said all oscar wants is to be alone and in control of his domain okay that's a cat maybe that's all any of us yeah. want it's a cat thing it's yeah cat it's just thing. a cat <laughs> Uh, so he follows Oscar around, and that reminded me of that book. Do you know that book called The Hidden Life of Dogs? Yes. By Elizabeth Marshall Thomas. Yep. Yeah, she's an anthropologist, and she follows. Uh, there's like a, a neighbor or friend had a husky that used to escape all the time, and she's like, where does that dog go? <laughs> so she got on her bike, and she followed the dog, and then she ended up with a whole book about it that got kind of popular at the time. Um, she, I think she... She followed that dog like on a on daily rounds of 130 square miles. Oh wow! Which her observations required a hell of a lot more cardio than <laughs> than doses, yeah. you know. But she was she was trying to find out like what do dogs want if they're left to their own devices? What do they want? Ah, and okay. the answer was they want other dogs. Mm, okay. 
Anyway, we still don't know really what Oscar wants. So Oscar, um, Dulce talks about Oscar jumping on a bed. He sniffs. And most of the time he leaves, right? Um, the sniffing turns out to be very important. And I think you jumped right to it. Uh, smelling death. Yes. Or smelling pending death. And um, we'll come back to that um, several times here. But uh, so I'm going to read a little passage from Dosa's article okay. for you, just so you get it, you know, let him tell you the story that uh, made him and Oscar famous. So making his way back up the hallway, Oscar arrives at room 313. The door is open and he proceeds inside. Mrs. K is wrestling, resting peacefully in her bed, her breathing steady but shallow. She is surrounded by photographs of her grandchildren and one from her wedding day. Despite these keepsakes, she is alone. Oscar jumps onto her bed and again sniffs the air. He pauses to consider the situation and then turns around twice before curling up beside Mrs. K. Okay, so an hour passes, Oscar waits. A nurse walks into the room to check on her patient. She pauses to note Oscar's presence. I think all of these details are very important. Yes. That he, the details that Dosa has chosen to share with us. Concerned, she hurriedly leaves the room and returns to her desk. She grabs Mrs. K's chart off the medical records rack and begins to make phone calls. Wow. Within a half hour, the family starts to arrive. <laughs> Chairs are brought into the room where the relatives begin their vigil. The priest is called in to deliver last rites, and still Oscar has not budged, instead purring and gently nuzzling Mrs. K. Wow. A young grandson asks his mother, what is the cat doing here? <laughs> the mother, fighting back tears, tells him, he's here to help grandma get to heaven. <laughs> 30 minutes later, Mrs. K takes her last earthly breath. Apparently, there are other breaths waiting <laughs> well, for her. Heaven. <laughs> <clears throat> With this, Oscar sits up, looks around, then departs the room so quietly that the grieving family barely notices. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So he doesn't leave until the patient dies. Right. So Dosa's book itself, I read, a, I didn't, like I said, I didn't read the book itself, but I read about the book itself. Right. <laughs> so it's not really about Oscar at all. Okay. Uh, it's about dementia and oh. uh, the families that it touches in the final stages. Okay. And he uses Oscar. It seems to me, again, didn't read the book, but it seems like he uses Oscar as a kind of Virgil leading him through the inferno of end stage dementia, right. you know? <laughs> um everyone says the book is moving it's compassionate it's highly informative you know must read if you are in a situation like oh, this where wow. you have a family member facing you know you and your family are facing this kind of loss but it's um it's not really about oscar and it doesn't have to be it's about dosa making rounds and sharing with you what he's learned okay. about this stage of our lives or the stage of our relationships with family members who suffer in this way right. So um, everybody who writes about Oscar, and remember, this is like most of the writing, most of the articles you find about Oscar are right when he hit the airwaves. Right. Uh, and the central question for most of the writers and interviewers is, how does he know? Mm -hmm. It's a more scientific thing, 
right? Um, he's pretty consistent in his predictions. He's better at it than the staff is. And the assumption is that he's providing comfort, mm -hmm. uh, which is was your assumption too. And it may be right. But um, I want to know what it is he knows and what does he want. Hmm. Um, so why is this? I want to know why is this antisocial cat seeking the intimate company of patients in their last hours right. of life? Like, <laughs> yeah. Okay, so these people, the people that he's curling up next and nuzzling are not aware of their surroundings. Right. They aren't moving at all. They aren't vocalizing. Their biological processes have slowed down. Um, there is really nothing to interact with, except it's like a water bottle. Right, I was going to say, <laughs> water they're still bottle. warm. <laughs> they're still breathing. Yeah. Uh, most people, but how does he know that this is the stage that we've gotten to, right? right. Uh, most people focus on the cat's sense of smell, which is what Dosa does. Um, you know, every time he he describes Oscar jumps up, sniffs the air and leaves and then right. jumps up, sniffs the air and goes, aha, and lies <laughs> right. down. Uh, so he he's assumed the sniffing is the key. Um, another uh, Dr. Daniel Estep is a certified applied animal behaviorist in Littleton, Colorado. Ooh, okay. He says, one of the things that happens with people who are dying is that they are not moving around much. So maybe the cat is picking up on the fact that the person on the bed is very quiet. It might not be the smell or the sounds, just the lack of movement. Hmm. Okay. And, all right, I, you know, a lot of people assume that cats are really selfish. Yeah. Uh, like you, you did not assume that the cat was selfish. You assumed that the cat wanted to comfort right. well, a dying creature. Because through experience, I had a tomcat, a fully equipped tomcat, because like I said, we never did anything about him, um, who would literally babysit. Mm. So we would have a bunch of kittens and of course mom would go off. And the minute he heard the babies mewling, he would climb into the box with them. Oh. and curl up with them and you, they would try to nurse and they just but he would he would hang out he would keep them warm um until the mom came back and then he'd leave wow but this is a male so cat with testicles <laughs> that's wonderful so i've seen See, that behavior in some ways do you know what i mean okay like, why is he yes doing providing that? comfort why is he doing yes that? he's got no interest um, in these kittens they're probably not even his so nice. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I'm sure if you Google this, you will see cats curling up next to sick baby deer. Oh, you're right. You know? Or something. Yeah. Fawns. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, what does he get wow. out of it? That's really interesting. Um, you know, but maybe uh, what did this daddy cat get out of it? Well, yeah, I... I don't know because they are, they're not, they're solitary animals. I mean, they're social. Here's the thing. Right. See, my husband assumes that Audrey is just into anything for herself. Like, if I, if I coo at her, you know, Audrey and I are very close. Like, right. You guys I, get along. You know, I can, I can, <laughs> I can groom her hoo ha. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Like, we are, we are this tight. So, um, <laughs> when she comes over and wants me to scratch her, you know, he says, oh, she just wants you to scratch her. Right. Um, but isn't that all we, any of us want? <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> you know, like, aren't we, 
in aren't aren't we also like that's that's what I want from him right exactly <laughs> like, why are we here yeah. right um and also, it's so much more complicated than that because um, Audrey trusts me. Right. Oh, she won't let me get near. Right. And that matters to me and it matters to her. And and she has come to trust me because I am predictable, which we, we will talk about shortly. I think um, that that routine is is part of this. Okay, like sure. What's safe and what isn't. But um so in the case of Oscar, if he's a skittish kitty, maybe the only people he can stand to cuddle with, you know, maybe like all creatures need physical, you know, sure. some amount of physical contact, yeah. but because he doesn't like, he doesn't like walkers and, you know, and, and he doesn't like people rolling over on him or whatever. So if they're, and pawing at if him. they're not, <laughs> yes, yes, thank you. So he knows this person is not going to go, oh, look at the kitty and, and pet him, you know? He, he wants to cuddle. He wants warmth. But living people annoy him. <laughs> so, like maybe he's a necrophiliac. I thought that, but I wasn't going to say it. Because he leaves us there, I they just die. There. <laughs> <laughs> He'd hang out if they, you know, but yeah, no. Yeah, so maybe he's leaving because they're starting to get cold. Well, yeah, that's what I would assume. <laughs> family members start wailing it's just not cool anymore right. the party's over <laughs> you know somebody's going to come move the body soon yeah so you know a couple other people were a little less oh, what's the word you know they didn't weren't as likely to uh, romanticize the situation sure. there's this uh, professor of community health and medicine uh, joan tino at brown uh, she works there she says I, I think he's following the patterning behavior of the staff oh. that routine that i'm talking about yeah she um, she works there, like I said, and uh, she says, this is an excellent nursing home. If a dying person is alone, the staff will usually go in so the patient is not alone and they hold a vigil. Yes. Okay, yep. so um, Oscar has seen this pattern repeated many times, and he may be mimicking it. And if when you think, let's go into the umwelt a second, he's lying on the bed. He knows the person or he, he chooses to lie there because the person is dying and he knows that people are going to gather and they're all going to, I mean, when you gather, I don't know if you've been with anyone who yes, dies, yes. Um, everybody sits around the bed and stares at the bed. Oh, okay. Yeah. So Oscar has become the star and <laughs> in a way where he, he may think himself, you know, he, yeah. Yes. Well, he, he has put himself at the center. Maybe, right. you know, who knows what he thinks we can't dare. But if you try to do a Dechario thing, you're curled up next to this unmoving person. And you know that when when you smell these smells and the person isn't moving anymore, like all the things, when you know this is what this is going to be. Because um, animals are very good at predicting. We, we all know, like the dog knows before you do when you're going to take it for a walk right. kind of thing. Oh, yeah. Um. The cat, because they're more observant. Mm -hmm. I think of uh, there. We assume that the the sign that we're about to take a ride in the car is like getting our car keys, putting our shoes on, grabbing our purse. But there may be other tells that we have that the dog is aware of. Right, we aren't. So, however, the cat knows. He knows this is going to happen. He knows that people are going to gather around the bed, and look and stare at the bed for a really long time. <laughs> and if you think about when you are, if you have a cat and you're reading a book. You have a cat and you're working yes. on your laptop. Yes. What does the cat do? Lays on the book, lays on the laptop. 
There you go. Yeah. And the laptop's warm. So some people use that, but books aren't warm and they will get right, right on the book. They want to put themselves between you and what you're looking at hmm. in circumstances when you are very still. That's true. Oh, that's really interesting. Thank you. Hmm. I got there via the umwelt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, okay, so couple factors, complicating factors. Um, this woman, Tino, Taino, she says animals are intuitive and we don't give them enough credit. And then she cites this example. Um, a resident had a blood clot in her leg and her leg was ice cold. Ooh. And Oscar wrapped his body around her leg and stayed until the woman died. <gasps> oh. Okay, well, that goes against the body heat oh. thing. Oh, yes, it does. Good noticing, Anne. <laughs> I used to say it to my students, good noticing. <laughs> it is good noticing. Um, I wonder, just given what we just talked about, because I, I didn't think of this when I read this multiple times before, um, people were probably looking at the leg. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Well, that that's consistent. Okay. All right. So the door... Um, some people wanted the door closed. They want Oscar in there, uh, particularly the, the family, you know, especially sure. probably once it was in the news, like this is the Grim Reaper of cats and um, the angel of death with whiskers or whatever. So um, they would close the door to keep Oscar out and Oscar would pace frantically outside the door. Wow. Yes. An employee said it's really something to see. I believe animals have a sixth sense. Um, Oscar gets pretty upset if he's not allowed in the room. Wow. I mean, cats yeah. don't like closed doors, but. <laughs> of course, that's right. Um, however, you know, this is a specific closed door. I'm sure there are other closed doors that he could be like pawing at um, <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> this one's closed. See, I'm so glad you said that, Anne, because remember, there are five other cats at this nursing home. Yeah. Why aren't they lying on right. bodies? Like, why aren't nursing homes that allow cats, why aren't all the cats doing this? Right. Okay. Uh, that is something we have to reckon with here. Mm -hmm. Most families who have Oscar curled up next to their loved one who's dying say that Oscar was a source of great comfort. So uh, how does he know? A lot of people talk about uh, pheromones, ketones. Yes. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, they assume that Oscar's attracted to the scent, but like I said, why aren't the other cats coming when they smell that? Um, and also the assumption is that because Oscar's doing this, he has this unique ability, but maybe all cats have it and they just aren't getting anything out of it. Well, yeah. And that's cats have personalities. Maybe other cats right, so smell Oscar... that and don't want to be anywhere near it. Right. So why does Oscar want to be near it? Yeah. Um, and even Dosa says, uh, I forget where I saw this. Um, it doesn't, the sense of pending death might be the cue, but it doesn't explain the behavior. Right. So if he's responding to a smell, that might be, said Dosa, but there's something more to it because he doesn't leave until the undertakers come. Wow. So I had to go looking deeper for, you know, people who are who specialize not in geriatrics, right. but in, um, 
you know, in animal behavior. And there wasn't a lot out there, but Smithsonian Magazine had a look at it. Mm -hmm. uh, some uh, writer writers at Smithsonian did a thorough search and they noted that no one has actually studied Oscar in any formal way. Okay. They just combed over the literature like I did and they found the same thing I did. Uh, all we have are anecdotes. You know, here's yeah. this antisocial cat doing this extraordinarily valuable social right. thing. Uh, so here are some explanations that uh, I, I thought of, and I, we already touched on um, one that cats like to interpose themselves right. <laughs> between anything you're looking at, which I would like to talk about more in a second. But uh, one, the first explanation that Smithsonian came up with and that I thought more about was confirmation bias. Right. Uh, it's the tendency to search for, interpret, favor, and recall information that supports your beliefs and values. Right. It's not anything we Americans do. Oh, no, <laughs> right ever. Now. No. Or law enforcement. Right. No. Okay. Uh, in this case, there's no cause and effect association at all between Oscar's behavior and anyone's death. Right. Other than chance. Like, Oscar lives in a nursing home. People are dying all the time. Mm -hmm. um, Dosa has called this the Oscar effect. You know, like where people come and gather because... Oscars there, I right, think. But, right. you know, it might just be superstition or, or something like superstition. Right. Um, so you, you noted a, a coincidence, like he happened to be on the bed of a couple people who died. And, you know, for any one of the reasons that we saw, like they're, they're just really still and he's like, oh, finally somebody <laughs> who, who meets my particular intimacy needs. Right. <laughs> um, and then they're like, wow, that person died. Um, I was thinking if, if what would would this story even be a story if Oscar were a black cat? Ooh. That's yeah. a good point, too, because then there would be, um, it might have been interpreted as the cat's, the reason oh, they're dying. Yes. Yes. It was bad luck. Right. Um, yeah, I didn't, I should have said Oscar is a really good looking cat. <laughs> <laughs> um, not that I mean I've I've had black cats they're they're beautiful they're pantherine oh I, yeah I love I, black I didn't, cats didn't mean that me too uh, uh, and my daughter has a black cat now uh, one of my favorite cats ever was uh, Haku who I'm going to talk about in a minute and he was a black cat um, this so you can have a handsome black cat Oscar is a handsome white cat and he's white with um, with big gray markings he's sort of oh okay evenly yeah yeah it's got like a nice balance of gray and white uh you know he'd be like one of the first cats that you would your eye would be drawn to because of his pleasing balance of color uh, that's why he was adopted i'm sure because right. he's pretty right um you know but i think maybe because of his appearance people had their guard down about this coincidence so okay. a couple of coincidences seem to happen and they ascribed significance to it for whatever reasons like maybe mm -hmm. other cats have been sleeping next to people but they were friendlier cats and you didn't you didn't you know you, you only noticed it because oscar wasn't friendly right this was unusual behavior for him and then after that you only notice when he's right that they died you know and you forget when he did it and, and he wasn't uh, that's the theory, the confirmation bias theory that um, also not only does he make rounds, he just walks as cats do. They they patrol. Right. Uh, so every cat in the place is patrolling. Every cat is probably also sniffing the air. Yeah. Right? Sure. I mean, looking for tuna, looking for a snack. Sure. <laughs> or even just like checking out uh, the other know, cat that was there. 
Yes, we don't know. Um, yeah, Vicki Hearn uh, talks about uh, cats and their umwelt. So, but the next, let me just dispense with the next theory, which is uh, the clever hound's fallacy is um, when um, was named after clever Hans, who was a famous horse who could do any math problem. And you would give him, you would throw like calculus at him and he would stomp the answer out. And people were like, wow, he's doing math right. and he's always right. Wow. And then it became apparent through some testing, which wasn't done with uh, Oscar, right. that um, he was watching the body languages uh, of the onlookers. Okay. Because they all knew the answer or the person who asked him right. the question knew the answer and their body language would slightly change and he would stop. So he knew there was a, there was a tail, there was a cue to stop. He'd ask the question, right. he'd start stomping. He's looking for when should I stop? And they, they tell him when to stop right. unknowingly yes. tell him when to stop. Right. Yeah. So in this, think about it in this community, people really want to know when death is imminent. Oh yeah. So they can contact the family. Right. So Oscar might not be predicting the death, but uh, predicting when he was going to get approval from the people he he lived with. Oh, okay. Because they're all going to stare at him. That's what he wants. Yeah, because exactly. he's a cat. <laughs> um, and you know, and I I thought of that because of Haku. I had this black cat, like I said, and I I loved this cat in part because of this behavior of his. One day I caught him in the garage and he was worrying something. Okay. And it was a teeny tiny snake. Now we have in Florida, we have a snake that is, as an adult, is no bigger than a re an emaciated worm. Okay. It, it's like two inches long. I can't remember what it's called. Uh, so at first I thought that's what it was, but then um, it, it wasn't, it had markings i had like this pattern on it and i am one of those people that has every audubon field guide right <laughs> like i want to know that the name of that cloud and i want to know the name <laughs> of that wildflower so especially animals so you know i got one for fish and yes it'll be all the things <laughs> so yeah so i was like hang on haku i'll be right back and i ran and i got my audubon field guide to reptiles and amphibians and I crouched on the floor with him. Okay. So here, let's get into the umwelt. He finds something really cool. And then I come running and I stare at it too. So Haku and I are staring at the snake together and he would pull it a little bit away. And then I wanted to look at it. So I would pull it back and I would turn it over and I would pick up and look at its little head and I'm flipping through the book and I put it down while I'm flipping through the book and he would pull it away. I don't know how long we spent doing this, but it was probably a really nerdy long time because I could not find what this snake was. And that's because it was an infant or a newly hatched black racer. Oh, okay. Right. So, I mean, I did eventually identify it, but I had to read all the things, you know, I had to say, okay, well, um, it's not an adult snake like that teeny one. And I got to start looking at, are they marked differently when they're newly hatched? And I found it. And I had black racers in my garage more than once. If we ever do an episode on snakes, I have to talk about my a relationship with black racers. Um, so it was a baby black racer. And after I identified it, I threw it out. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what time of day that was, but 
coincidentally, I had this braided leather hippie belt, like it had tassels on the end. And I never wore it because it's a bit much, (laughs) even for me. (laughs) But it's a great cat toy because you can kind of whip it back and forth, you know, and it it snakes along the floor and it has the tassels on the end. And so we used to play with Haku with that. And it was lying somewhere around the house. So that night I'm getting ready for bed. I'm up in my bedroom. There's a two-story place. This is the place where um, later Audrey tormented you. Ah, yes. Same place. Um, So I'm getting ready for bed and I hear this ungodly sound that I have never heard before. It was, I'm going to try to make it right now. I can't believe I'm going to do this, but here I go. It was like, (laughs) you can cut that please. (laughs) And it, I was like, what the hell is wrong with Haku? You know? And, um, and it kept going on and on. And I looked over the railing and there he is walking through the living room and he's dragging that belt ah and yes and so i watched him and he until he disappeared under the floor i was on a on a balcony and he went underneath me and i couldn't see him anymore and he's and he's yowling the whole time that he's dragging this thing and he comes up the stairs and he brings the the snake to me right okay so i I said, good boy. Because <laughs> I knew that cats are said to bring gifts. Yes. Right. I read, I think it might have been Vicki Hearn, that cats are trying, they teach their young how to hunt. Right. They're trying, they are trying to teach you how to hunt. Yeah, that's what's really going on. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So he thought, he's like, wow, my student is showing interest <laughs> in killing snakes. <laughs> but it was, it was, I mean, why the yowling? And, and he brought it to me. Anyway. And every night after that, that was part of our bedtime routine is as I was getting ready for bed and the the original snake was daytime. We did, I did not go to bed afterwards, Right. but he closed his day every day by bringing me a snake, (laughs) a fake snake. (laughs) And that is a very social behavior that he initiated. Right. You know, what, what did he want? Did he want the two of us to crouch on the floor and examine the snake again? Did he take so much pleasure in that shared experience of, of examining the kill? Right. That he wanted to repeat it. So um, Smithsonian says of Oscar, it's possible that Oscar may simply be responding to the nurses and the staff activity related to the patient's condition. For example, patients who are near death are likely to have more activity in their rooms for the obvious reasons that nurses pay extra attention to those who are in danger of dying than they do medically stable patients. Oscar may visit those beds more often simply because there's more going on there Hmm, when the patient seems especially unwell. So, you know, there was more going on there. Like when had uh, Oscar, when had Haku ever done anything that I came over and shared the same, uh, with the same fascination that he had right for you know it's it's kind of like men gathered around a grill right. <laughs> a cookout. even a fire <laughs> yes so um you know so oscar may know that when the patient is in this condition there will soon be a lot going on here and he likes the activity and the attention uh that's um so he lies there waiting for it you know yeah so um 
the cues may be odors, it may be the stillness, but um, he's not there to comfort the dying. Uh, his motive may be the same as it was for Clever Hans and Jim the Wonder Dog, that he likes, that once or twice he got a certain kind of attention. Okay. For lying there. And he probably got it because he didn't usually lie next to people. And now he, he wants everybody to sit and stare with him. <laughs> like Haku did. Right. Why did he like it? You know, Vicki Hearn in Adam's Task in her chapter on cats says that cats have a feline interest in and focus on our pleasure. Now, that chapter is pretty phil philosophical. It's later in the book. And so it makes references to concepts and studies and all that she's referenced before. So it was a bit of a challenge to read. She's a professor of philosophy and linguistics oh, and all that. Yeah. So, yeah, it was, you know, I, it was it was a deep dive sure uh, if you will but um he says uh, hern says that cats behave badly during experiments because of the way humans behave during experiments oh okay okay all right um she heard a scientist oh, she overheard a scientist say don't use cats they'll screw up your data she says that's at that point i would want to i would want to study cats if, right. if they we don't why are they screwing up the data um if you really want to understand animals, but um, she said cats, once cats figure out the researchers want them to push a lever, they'd rather starve than push the lever. <laughs> and her, like, in, I, I read this chapter a couple of times in anticipation of this conversation. Near as I could tell, um, cats hate being deprived of social cues. So Ooh. if you're a scientist, you're trying to be objective. She talked about um, don't emit brain waves, like that was something that they said to each other. Uh, but you're always going to be admitting brain, um, emitting brain yes. waves, right? Yes. You know the brain. If you're a, a scientist trying to be objective, those are the brain waves you're putting out. Right. And cats are trying to read the behavior around them all the time. The umwelt of a cat is highly alert. Yes. Oh, yeah. And it receives pleasure or what she calls strokes, from um, the input. Even though they sleep 23 hours a day, right. what they hate is novelty. You know, they like novelty, like you put a box on the table. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, a box. So, like, wake up and come check out the box, you know, or anything you put in the environment that's right. new. Um, like, you know, dogs are going to bark at it. Right. Um, if it's new, it's not supposed to be there. But so they're, like, always scanning. And when everything is the same, like, they've already read all of the information, the smells, the sounds, the um, vibrations in their whiskers, um, and everything is status quo and safe, they will sleep. You know, or they can walk out safely in the in, in the middle of the room. Right. But that the environment includes us. So how much are we included in that environment? Do we become so much of that environment that it's something to protect, defend, give your life for, or at least one of your nine lives? Join us here next time for Today We're Gonna Talk About Cats, Part 2. To explore more of this animal life, please subscribe, rate, and review. It would help us immensely, and we will be eternally grateful. Go to www.thisanimallife.com for more links and information on this and other episodes. Our music, as always, was composed and performed by Chip Salerno. Find more of Chip's music on soundcloud.com. 
Until next time.